Elizabeth Holmes founded a company called Theranos. Over its 15-year existence, Theranos raised almost $1 billion in funding. Elizabeth Holmes signed multi-million dollar deals with some of the US's largest retailers, and she persuaded hundreds of Silicon Valley's finest talent to join her at her company. But here's the thing. Theranos was built on a lie. The product didn't work. The revenues were inflated. The marketing was largely made up. So how did Elizabeth Holmes convince so many people to believe her? How on earth did she get away with this lie for so long? In the first part of this two-part series, I explained the psychology behind why Elizabeth Holmes lied and why others in her company joined her in lying. In today's episode, I answer my final question. Why did people believe her? Well, it turns out a lot of it comes down to heuristics, nudges, and behavioral science principles. Holmes, knowingly or unwittingly, relentlessly used these nudges to convince, persuade, and manipulate people. Today, I'll uncover how she did it and why people believed her. Not so you can do the same, but so you can be wary next time a snake oil salesperson comes along and tries to pull the same trick. All of that coming up on this episode of Nudge. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, folks. You are listening to Nudge with me, Phil Agnew. Now, this is the second part of a two-part series on Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. In the first part of this series, I covered the psychology behind lying. I walked through the reasons why people lie, how all of us lie more than we'd like to admit. We also explored how Holmes went beyond normal levels of lying, how she lied to levels that most of us would never get to. I detailed how she lied to multiple stakeholders, but also why her employees and investors and even journalists endorsed those lies. That first episode was really a deep dive into the psychology behind dishonesty and hopefully cast some light on why Holmes ended up in the position she did. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, that is fine. Keep on listening. You don't need to have listened to that one before this, but I'd recommend tuning into both. So if you have time, do go back and listen to part one after this. In part two, what we're going to talk about today, we are not looking at why Elizabeth Holmes lied. Instead, we're attempting to figure out why so many people believed her. See, what Holmes achieved in, well, a twisted way, is remarkable. She raised $1 billion in funding. Her company was worth $10 billion, and she became the youngest self-made female billionaire ever. Not everyone could lie their way to this position. Plenty of people spend their careers lying and exaggerating, but few have reached the heights that Elizabeth Holmes reached. In the last episode, I shared how potentially as many as 1 in 10 people can be classified as pathological liars, but 10% of people aren't fooling hundreds of millionaires to invest in them like Holmes did. Which means there was something unique about Elizabeth Holmes's approach. Something she was doing to convince, persuade, and manipulate people. 
something that set her apart from the other liars out there. Today, I'll explain what that was. But quick disclaimer, this is not an endorsement. What Elizabeth Holmes did was criminal. She is rightly imprisoned for her lies. Her approach to persuasion is something that all of us should avoid. I'm sharing how she persuaded people, not as a handbook for you to follow, but as a warning for what to look out for. All right, let's get started. One of the main cognitive biases that Elizabeth Holmes used to convince and persuade people was the halo effect. Now, if you're a long-time listener of Nudge, you will have heard of this effect before. But for newbies, here's a very quick recap. The halo effect is the tendency for positive impressions of a person in one area to positively influence one's opinions or feelings in another area. I'll give you a few examples to explain. So attractive people, due to their attractive looks, are often perceived as more intelligent or kind, even when there's no evidence to support it. Celebrity-endorsed products are viewed as higher quality, even when they're not. And average sports players who perhaps remind us of a legendary player due to a haircut or a style of play are seen as better players even when they're not. There are, of course, studies that back this up. The effect was first documented back in the 1920s by Edward Thorndike. He identified the bias whilst conducting a study of military officers. In the study, Thorndike asked commanding officers to rate their subordinates on a variety of different attributes, such as leadership, intelligence, and physical appearance. He found that if an officer rated a subordinate very positively on just one trait, they were more likely to be rated positively on other traits as well, regardless of whether those traits were related. For example, if officers rated a subordinate as a very good leader, they were then more likely to rate them as intelligent, attractive and personal, even if they weren't intelligent, attractive or personable. Thorndike concluded that this bias occurred because the one significantly positive trait influenced the view of all the other traits, making a sort of metaphorical halo. An incredibly brave leader like Zelensky will be seen as more intelligent, compassionate and caring than equivalent leaders, even if there's no evidence, even if that view is simply biased by his incredible bravery. An incredibly dangerous leader like Putin will be seen as more narcissistic, psychotic and deranged, again, even if there's no conclusive evidence to prove it. Those significantly positive or negative traits create a halo that damage or boost the perception of other traits. Since Thorndike's discovery, the halo effect has been widely studied in social psychology. It has been found to influence many areas of life, from job interviews to product reviews. It doesn't just affect people, but companies, countries, products, brands, and even pets. I've shared heaps of examples of halo effect studies before on the show, but here are a few that you definitely won't have heard from me yet. One study is cited in Stuart Sutherland's book, Irrationality. It focused on handwriting. In the study, the exact same exam scripts were rewritten once in good handwriting and another time in bad handwriting. Again, the content of these scripts was identical. The words were the same. And they were given to two sets of examiners. Each examiner marked a set of different scripts, half written with bad writing, half written with nice handwriting, and they were told to disregard the handwriting and purely mark on the content, just like a normal examiner would. Despite being told explicitly not to focus on handwriting, the halo effect still took hold. On average, the scripts with good handwriting received considerably higher marks than those with poor handwriting. That's the halo effect in action. The good handwriting boosts the perception of other traits. 
A similar experiment had an even more worrying result. When the same essay was shown to examiners bearing a surname of either a male or female Christian name, it received higher marks when the examiner thought it was written by a man. Now, I should clarify that this study was done over 20, 30 years ago now. Hopefully that is starting to change. But it showed clear evidence for the halo effect, for bias in this case. And this halo effect, it isn't just visible in lab experiments, it's visible in all walks of life. Take all of the scientific studies that I love to cite. Well, Sutherland, in his book, makes the point that even these are biased by the halo effect. Now, scientists can't just go and publish anything they want in a journal. It's up to the editor to decide whether it should be published based on feedback from other experts in the field. In a study conducted in 1982, psychologists found that when they submitted previously published articles to the same journals, but under fake names and affiliations, very few editors actually realised that they'd published the article already. And of the remaining articles, all of which, as I said, had been previously published by esteemed authors, eight out of nine were rejected. The editors in these scenarios said that these papers did not deserve publication. This suggests that the editors pay more attention to the author's names and affiliations than the actual scientific work reported. Previously published papers were viewed as unworthy of publication simply because the editor didn't recognise the author's name. In other words, even the most rigorous scientific reviews are massively swayed by the halo effect. This is why Elizabeth Holmes chose to spend a large proportion of her career building her metaphoric halo. She did this mainly by attempting to emulate and associate herself with Apple, the company Apple, and its founder and CEO, Steve Jobs. Like I mentioned earlier, if you are associated to someone of greatness, it'll make their greatness rub off on you. You'll benefit from their halo. Elizabeth did this repeatedly. Not only with Apple, she started by doing this with her, with her family, with her grandparents. To get her initial investments, she repeatedly talked about how her great-grandfather was a successful entrepreneur, how he had made millions turning her family into one of the richest in America. She shared how her uncle had a hospital named after him. She suggested that these two facts, which, let's face it, are irrelevant for Elizabeth Holmes, would make her a good investment. It shouldn't work, but due to the halo effect, it does. This young lady comes in, I think she probably was 21 years old, and it left Stanford, didn't graduate. She had a company called Theranos. And, um, and I thought this was going to be a short conversation. She did, had no background in business. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that, that's quite presumptuous for somebody to say, I'm going to be president of the but Yeah, yeah. There's an important distinction. Her great-grandfather was an entrepreneur, very successful so that was one side. That's the entrepreneurial side, but she was in the medical side. Ah, it turns out later, her, the hospital in there where they lived is named after her great uncle. So she came by both of these, the two things that are necessary here, one medicine and the other entrepreneur. Being associated with her uncle and her great-grandparents had benefits. But she wanted something a little more potent, so she styled herself on arguably the most successful tech CEO in our history, Steve Jobs. And when I say style herself, I should say she directly copied him in almost every way. 
Elizabeth Holmes dressed identically to Steve Jobs with the same black turtleneck. Elizabeth Holmes hired many of Steve Jobs' former employees, including the iPhone designer and amongst a host of others. Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford, following in the footsteps of Steve Jobs and other well-known entrepreneurs like Gates and Zuckerberg, who also were dropouts. She even got the infamous Apple ad agency, Chayat Day, who created the famous 1984 Apple Super Bowl ad to create Theranos's ads. The clear replication of Apple's strategy and Steve Jobs' look is far too consistent to be an accident. In fact, we know it's not an accident. When asked about her initial goals during a conversation with her lawyer, Holmes wrote Becoming Steve Jobs in one note. She clearly wanted to be connected with Steve Jobs, And this actually worked. There were hundreds of articles that linked the two. Investors spoke about how she reminded them of Steve Jobs, and this helped her benefit off his metaphoric halo. Of course, she didn't just stop at Steve Jobs. She was happy to be associated with many people of influence. She named the Theranos product, the blood testing device, Edison, after the famous inventor Thomas Edison. She was regularly pictured with well-known celebrities and politicians. Bill Clinton said this about her. You founded this company 12 years ago, right? Tell them how old you were. I was 19. (laughs) Don't worry about the future. We're in good hands. Jared Leto said this. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the only person I know who makes me feel like a lazy bastard, Elizabeth Holmes. And Joe Biden, the vice president at the time, said this. The way lab tests have been done have been extremely expensive. Uh, They've been inconvenient to literally get to get them done. The lab Biden was touring was built in just days before his visit. It was created specifically for his visit. It merely gave the appearance of cutting edge tech. It wasn't cutting edge. However, the Edisons in the room, they didn't work. The screens, which looked like they were showing a live product, were just videos on repeat showing the appearance of a working product. In fact, Holmes had the team install giant fans in the 24 hours prior to the visit to remove the smell of newly painted walls. The sole goal of that visit was to have Biden's popularity, his authority and his influence to spill over and become associated with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes because simply associating Theranos with these influential names is enough to change perception. In fact, it's something I've tested myself for this very podcast. I ran my own test to see how the halo effect really works. Now again, quick disclaimer, I am not a scientist and my experiment has not been peer-reviewed. I simply tested it because I was intrigued. I wanted to determine if Theranos's strategy of integrity by association would really work. So my experiment was simple. I reached out to 100 participants of all demographic groups within the UK using Google surveys. I asked the group a very simple question. If you've listened to Nudge before on a very old episode of Nudge, you will have heard this. I asked, would you listen to this podcast? And beneath the question was a picture of the Nudge podcast logo. That's the logo you'll see on screen if you open your podcast player right now. However, I added a twist. Half of the participants saw the Nudge logo on top of a standard blue background. The other half of participants saw the same logo, but this time, instead of a blue background, viewers would see the faint, dimmed logos of other very popular podcasts. 
these weren't random podcasts. No, I wanted to test the halo effect. So I picked six of the most popular shows in the UK at that time. Shows like Off Menu, Desert Island Discs and Diary of a CEO. I picked those shows because they are some of the most well-known shows in the UK. I should add that I made it very clear that the participant wouldn't get confused between which podcast they were being asked about. The Nudge logo was in full colour, front and centre, and about twice the size of the dimmed-out other podcast logos behind it, so it was clear they were being asked about Nudge. One day, and $100 later, the Google surveys came back with a result. And as it turns out, Elizabeth Holmes was right. Her strategy of associating herself with others really does work. Because it turns out, people were almost three times more willing to listen to Nudge Podcast when it was pictured alongside other well-known shows. When a logo was seen on its own, only 6.4% of people said they would listen. When it was pictured alongside popular peers, 15.8% said they would listen. It is clear that the halo effect had an influence. And this blew my mind. Just being in the presence of high-status others boosted my show. If you want to learn more about that, I have dropped a link to the test in the show notes. Elizabeth Holmes became more persuasive because of the halo effect. Her constant comparisons with Steve Jobs and Apple gave her a higher level of trustworthiness that she just didn't deserve. Her associations with Clinton, Jared Leto, Joe Biden and others added to her authority and influence due to the halo effect. This metaphoric halo helped her get investment. It helped her get customers and helped her get press hits. But it's not the only behavioural science intervention that she used. No, there are three more tactics she applied and I'll share each of them after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. Now, previously on Nudge, I've spoken about the power of the labour illusion. This psychological phenomenon is a fairly simple one. Essentially, if you show the labour that's gone into creating something, it'll make potential customers value it more. Researchers Michael Norton and Ryan Burrell first publicised this back in 2011. They found that Google searches would appear more valuable if the search engine showed all of the work and effort it went into getting the results. So in one variant of the study, participants clicked search and a plain loading wheel would pop up for five seconds, then the results would appear. No labour illusion here. However, in the other variant, the loading wheel would be replaced by vivid imagery of the machine searching through thousands of different combinations, articles and potential answers, with dozens of lines of text popping up on the screen before the search engine revealed the results after five seconds. 
So one showed all of the effort and work and labour going in to get the results, the other just loaded as normal. Participants were then asked how relevant the results were to their search. Without the perceived labour, where the participants just saw the plane loading wheel, only 4.47% said the results were relevant. With the perceived labour, that shot up to 5.15%. That's a 15% lift. And it shows that the labour illusion is clearly very persuasive. Showing the work you've put into something makes that thing more valuable. Funnily enough, this is something that Steve Jobs knew and he used extensively. Whenever he launched a new product, he'd talk about the hours, weeks, months and years that went into it. I talk about this on my two-part episode on Steve Jobs. So it was no surprise to me that Elizabeth uses this same tactic. There are plenty of examples of this, like when she gave CNN an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at her lab. For the very first time, Elizabeth Holmes is opening up the secret labs of Theranos. No one has ever seen this. You are the first one. Wow. This is a smart tactic, showing a tour of your company, highlighting the labor you're spending working on your product, will make people value it more, even, like in Theranos' case, if that labor isn't real. A paper titled Pulling Back the Curtain, published in 2022, found that company tours caused an 84% higher word of mouth intention and a 32% increase in purchase intention. In other words, going on a company tour will make you more likely to talk about it and more likely to want to buy. Okay, so that covers a lot of the public relations and press that Theranos did to market their product. There's a lot of that in other shows you might have heard about Theranos. But very little has been said about the contents of Theranos' actual website. See, the website, it no longer exists, of course. The company doesn't exist. You can't go to theranos.com to take a look at it. But using the Wayback Machine, a tool that allows you to view exactly how a website looked at a certain point in history, I was able to go back and see how Theranos marketed itself in 2017. And it's clear, when looking back at this website, that they used the labour illusion bias extensively in their marketing. Now, just below the fold on the homepage in 2017 was a picture of the Edison, their mini lab blood testing machine, the main product that Theranos offered. The image is very similar to something you'd see on an Apple website. The Edison has been taken apart to reveal all of the individual parts that make up the whole. Pictured around the frame of the machine, you'll see the technical blueprint style images of all the different components. Components like the cartridge, the camera, the material handing robot, the isothermal detector, the cryptometer, and half a dozen other gizmos with technical names. Now, knowing what we now know, it is clear that this image is BS. The product didn't work. All this functionality was just for show, and it's largely useless. But yet, Theranos and Holmes chose to prominently show this image. They chose to put it very high up on their homepage of their website. Why? Well, just like the search engine study I shared earlier, people value items more when they see the work that goes into them. So Holmes chose to show all the work that went into the Edison, even if that work was largely bogus. I've included an image of this in the show notes if you want to take a look for yourself. So, labour illusion is one thing, but it's not the only bias they took advantage of on their site. Scrolling back through the years, you can see how the site changes over time. And in 2016, they went with a very different approach. And it's fairly striking, because it's fairly different from most other style of websites that you'll see. In this version of the site, they featured people, not the product. Now, these pictures of people's faces, they aren't quite like the stock imagery that we're used to. No, 
on the site back in 2016, which again you can see in the show notes, you'll see four very high resolution shots of people looking directly into the camera. Some are the faces of Theranos employees in white lab coats. Others show customers, a young boy, for example, with blue eyes. Turns out this distinctive imagery wasn't just used on the site. It was featured on their billboard advertising and even on a sign outside their office. It's clear that these striking face-on images are a key part of the brand identity. But the behavioural scientist in me couldn't help but be a little suspect of why they chose these images. See, photos of faces looking directly into the camera have a strange effect on us. This is known in the field as the watched eyes effect. The watched eyes effect refers to the phenomenon where people behave more pro-socially and more trustworthy when they feel they are being watched by others. The effect was first demonstrated in 2006 by Melissa Bateson and her colleagues. In the study, participants were asked to contribute money to a communal coffee fund in the university department. See, at this university, the coffee wasn't free. Someone had to go out and buy the coffee, milk and sugar, and the department relied on donations. Bateson wanted to test if she could use imagery to boost donations. The researchers placed one of two images near the coffee machines on alternative weeks. One image was a picture of flowers, and the other was a picture of just someone's eyes looking directly at the camera, so directly at you when you look at that picture. Very similar to what you'll see on the Theranos website. The researchers found that participants contributed nearly three times as much money to the pot when the picture of eyes was displayed compared to the picture of flowers. It suggests that the presence of images of eyes looking directly into the camera can increase your trustworthy behaviour. The researchers speculated that the reason for this effect is that the images of eyes create a perception of being watched, which in turn triggers subconscious desire to conform to social norms and behave in a socially acceptable manner, which at the university meant donating the proper amount to the coffee fund. Since the original study, the watched eyes effect has been replicated in various different contexts, including littering, bike theft, and honesty in reporting expenses. I should note that the exact findings with donations in the coffee fund haven't been effectively replicated, but there's certainly evidence that shows that this effect does work. Now, I have no idea if Theranos and Holmes were aware of this study, but the fact that these watched eyes style images were such a core part of this brand made me suspect that they probably knew. It makes me think they used these images deliberately. After all, study after study shows that images of people looking directly at the camera will boost trust, which of course is exactly what Veranos wanted. They wanted people to trust them, and the watched eyes effect was helping them achieve just that. Now, there are a few more examples of nudges that Elizabeth Holmes had applied that I don't have time to get into. Stuff like how she used concrete language over abstract metaphors, and also how she used the input bias to boost others' perception of her. She walked around, for example, with four bodyguards and installed bulletproof glass in the office. According to reports, there was little need for this, but it played into the input bias, giving her the appearance of more influence and clout. However, before ending today, I did want to cover one final nudge that Holmes knowingly or unknowingly used. It's her voice. This is what happens when you work to change things. And first they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. 
See, you can't help but notice that Elizabeth's voice is strikingly low, much lower than you might expect. Many suspected that she faked her voice. In fact, some YouTubers have scoured through interviews to find examples of Holmes falling out of character and reverting to her so-called normal voice. This clip from the YouTuber Daydreaming is the best I could find. It starts with Holmes supposedly using her real voice before realising and dropping down to her deeper fake voice. No, it hasn't. Well, if I use traditional words to describe what we're doing, it's hard because people then associate it with conventional processes for analysing drugs and development or whatever aspects we may be applying our technology to. Now look, I do not know if she was faking her voice. And honestly, I'm not sure it's something she should be criticised for if that was the case. Unfortunately, everyone seems to have an unconscious bias towards lower-pitched voices. This preference for a lower tone, a lower pitch, is a clear form of discrimination. It's an unconscious bias that affects all too many of us. Joseph Marks and Steve Martin talk about this in their book, Messengers. They share a study where participants were asked to listen to a speech from a politician that had been digitally edited to change the pitch. Some participants heard the speech as normal, some heard a higher pitch, and some heard a lower pitch. They were then asked how likely they would be to vote for that political candidate. And unfortunately, people are 30% more likely to vote for the lower-toned speech, even though the content of the actual speech was identical. Elizabeth Holmes may well have known this. She may well have lowered her voice to benefit from this. But I'm not too comfortable with the intense interest around this aspect of her life. After all, if she did lie about her voice, she only did so to combat the everyday sexism that every woman will experience. Compared to her other lies, this feels a lot less significant. In a similar vein, people talk about her look. They reference how attractive she is for a Silicon Valley CEO. This sort of rhetoric has been shared plenty of times in the podcast series that I admire and I recommend called Dropout and in the book Bad Blood. And of course, there is evidence that attractive people get a subconscious bias that gives them a leg up. Like I spoke about earlier with the halo effect, individuals who are considered more physically attractive tend to achieve higher academic scores, receive more positive evaluations from teachers, and ultimately secure better job opportunities. This phenomenon is often referred to as the beauty premium, as described by American economist Daniel Hammamesh. According to Hammamesh, attractive individuals may earn up to 10 to 15% higher annual salaries. Italian researchers did really fascinating studies in this area. They sent out 11,000 CVs, some of which included a photograph of an attractive applicant, some of an unattractive candidate. The results revealed that attractive individuals were 25% more likely to receive a callback for an interview, despite the contents of the CV being identical. This study has been repeated in Argentina, in Israel, and it supports the notion that physical attractiveness can have a significant impact on people's career. Now, it's true that Elizabeth's voice and her attractiveness may have contributed to just how persuasive she was. I'm sure it did, in fact. But those two elements are just small aspects of a much bigger picture. The halo effect, the watched eye effect, labour illusion, all of these biases contribute just as much and arguably more than her voice and look alone. Stating that Holmes only got away with her lies for so long because she faked her voice is totally missing the point. Over this two-part mini-series, we've covered a lot. We've answered why Holmes might have decided to lie, why others in the company endorsed those lies, and we've also covered why people believed her. 
But, as I'm sure many of you know, all these lies eventually caught up with Holmes. On January 3rd, 2022, Elizabeth Holmes was found guilty of four counts of defrauding investors. She was sentenced to 11 years in prison, and that's where Holmes is now, in a federal prison camp in Texas. To end the show, I wanted to share a suggestion, a way for you to keep an eye out for snake oil salespeople like Holmes. Obviously, there were dozens of small interventions that Holmes used to boost her persuasiveness the halo effect, the labour illusion, the watched eyes effect, etc. But I think the biggest red flag is her inflexibility. From 2003, right the way up to 2018, she shared just one single vision. Her vision was to democratise healthcare by providing a range of blood tests with just a pinprick of blood. She created this vision without any real scientific backing and stuck to it despite clear evidence that it wouldn't work. This I think, is the most obvious warning sign. Someone who is unable to alter their views in the face of conflicting evidence, someone who is convinced that their initial idea is great and refuses to heed advice from those who say otherwise, these types of people are people to be worried about. This is a huge red flag. Partly because this type of behaviour, this inflexibility, is actually very counterproductive. This type of behaviour rarely leads to great ideas. See, great ideas aren't dreamt up fully complete and ready to work on. Great ideas aren't something that a teenager in school will just come up with one day and then go and build for 15 years and suddenly get there. No, most great ideas, in fact, almost all great ideas, come through trial and error, learnings and setbacks, and all too often from completely adjacent fields. I'll leave you with one wonderful story which shows just this, and it's from Dave Trott's book, Crossover Creativity. Ronald Fisher was a mathematician working at the Rothamsted Experimental Station in Herefordshire in 1920. He offered to make his colleague, a biologist named Muriel Bristol, a cup of tea. Ronald went to make the cup of tea, Muriel watched him, and she quickly said, stop, stop, you're doing it wrong. Fisher said, what's the problem? What am I doing wrong? She said, you're putting the milk in first. I don't like it that way. Fisher said, she was being ridiculous. It's a matter of simple thermodynamics. Liquid A is added to liquid B, and that's exactly the same as adding liquid B to liquid A. The order is irrelevant, but Muriel insisted it wasn't, and she insisted that she could taste the difference. As they were both scientists, there was only one logical way to test this. Scientists gathered round as Fisher made eight cups of tea. All of the tea was identical in every way except one. In four of the cups, milk was added first, and in the other four, it was added second. In a blind test, Muriel Bristol had no way of knowing which was which. But everyone watched as one after another, she identified immediately from taste alone which cup of tea was which. She was correct eight out of eight times. Her point was proven. But Fisher wasn't convinced, and it bothered him. Logically, this made no sense. As a mathematician, there must be a formula for this. There was truth in numbers, he thought, so he began to devise equations. What was the chance of pure luck? What was the possibility of mistakes? What if he used a larger sample size? What if he added random variations? Without realising it, he had moved on from simply analysing T into devising a correct way to run tests and arrive at statistical significance. Fisher didn't realise this, but he was actually inventing the null hypothesis, which became the bedrock of science and statistical analysis. Just by wanting to figure out if his colleague really knew the difference between cups of tea, he ended up with something much greater. 
1925, he published his work, Statistical Methods for Research Workers, which is still the foundational work on statistics taught in universities today. Anders Hold called Fisher a genius who almost single-handedly created the foundation for modern statistical science. Richard Dawkins called him the greatest biologist since Darwin. All of the studies that I share on Nudge wouldn't be possible without Fisher's foundational work, and Fisher's world-changing idea wasn't something that he came up with aged 18. It wasn't a singular vision, a singular goal throughout his career. It was something he stumbled upon when brewing a cup of tea. Dave Trott, who shared this brilliant story, says that inspiration will come from the most unlikely of places. We shouldn't expect someone to know how they're going to change the world from day one, because that's not how it works. George Lucas didn't think he was founding a multi-billion dollar empire when he began making science fiction B-movies. Andy Warhol didn't think he was creating an art movement when he screen-printed Campbell's Soup. And Steve Jobs didn't think he was revolutionising computers when he bunked into typography classes without paying. Holmes wanted to emulate Jobs by pursuing an idea that would change the world. But that's not actually how Jobs did it. He didn't set out to change the world. He stumbled into it. World-changing ideas are rarely the result of an 18-year-old's obsession. And more often than not, these great ideas are uncovered over time. So be wary of any 18-year-old who's convinced she'll change the world. And if you are desperate for a great idea, then... Go and brew a cup of tea. Okay, that is all for this week, folks. I really hope you enjoyed this one. If you did, you'd probably love some of the previous episodes that I have done on Steve Jobs, on Julius Caesar, on Greta Thunberg. They're similar to this podcast. They're a real deep dive into how those people are so influential and so persuasive except none of those people pathologically lied, so a little different. But those shows are very good if you want to go listen to something similar. If you do love Nudge, if you do love the podcast, I, I think you will like my weekly newsletter as well. On the newsletter, I share behavioral science tips each week, plus I send around a reminder every time an episode goes live. If you want to sign up, head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu to sign up. Do that and you'll also get special access to bonus episodes too. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, go check out the book Bad Blood and the podcast series Dropout. I learned a lot from those sources when researching for this show. They are both brilliant if you want to learn more about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. As always, I'm Phil Agnew. If you like this episode and want to let me know, do send me a message on social media. I'm on Twitter at P underscore Agnew. That's A-G-N-E-W. And I'm on LinkedIn at Phil Agnew on there. All right. Cheers for listening to this episode of Nudge.